2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1 through verse 17. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, the king being King David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with With this vision, with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning often with many distractions. Lord, with often many pressing needs that are screaming for our attention. And yet, Lord, we pray that you would teach us that there is but one thing that we need more than anything else this morning. Father, we need to hear from you. We desperately need to hear from your word. We desperately need to be humbled by it and tremble before it. And so, Father, we pray that you would come and speak through this preacher, that your spirit would make your word effectual in our hearts and lives. And, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with the listeners, the hearers this morning, that they would have soft, receptive hearts to your word. Father, we need to see you high and lifted up in our midst this morning so that we would lose sight of all of the other concerns that we have. 
then we would see that our greatest need, salvation, has been met in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So come now, exalt him in our midst by the power of your Spirit, to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. Well, this morning, we continue our Advent series, and this morning, what we're going to do today is we're going to leave Abraham behind, who we looked at last week, and we're going to fast forward past a huge chunk of Old Testament history, huge chunk. We're going to skip past the Exodus, past the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, past the establishment of the tabernacle and the priesthood, past the conquest of Canaan and the time of the judges. We're jumping past all of that to the rise of the kings in Israel. And the king that we're going to look at specifically this morning is King David. And the reason we're going to look specifically at King David is because he has more scripture written about him than any other character of the Bible except Jesus. Did you know that? Other than Jesus, David has more scripture written about him than any other ancient figure. And it shouldn't surprise us that this figure in the Old Testament who receives so much attention is a king. And the reason it shouldn't surprise us is because the ancients were fascinated by their kings. They loved their kings. They wrote songs for their kings. They told stories about their kings. They built monuments in honor to their kings. They loved them. But you know, that's not the only reason why we shouldn't be surprised at how much attention King David gets. Because it's not just the Israelites or ancient cultures or the British who are fascinated with kings. We're fascinated with royalty today as well, aren't we? We're fascinated with royalty. For example, did you guys hear the most recent story in the news about um, Prince William and Princess Kate? Princess Kate apparently is pregnant and she's experiencing severe morning sickness, information that we all need to know. But somehow these two Australian disc jockeys heard about this and found out which hospital she was at. And so they called the hospital and apparently being very good impersonators, impersonated vocally Prince William and the Queen and talked to this nurse, and the nurse began to divulge all this personal information, intimate details about how Princess Kate was struggling with morning sickness. Now you tell me that we're not fascinated by royalty. I guarantee you, when Lord willing, my wife and I get pregnant, no one is going to prank call trying to get the details about her morning sickness. But, the, but we do. Or how about when the royal couple got married last year? Do you remember that? So many people, I think I have to admit that I actually watched parts of it live while I was at work. But so many people tuned in. So many people watched it. So many people flew to London to to watch it happen. I think it happened in London. I didn't actually research that. But I'm pretty sure it happened there. It It was crazy. People were buying memorabilia and magazines. Special editions were coming out. Why? We're fascinated with royalty. Fascinated by kings. And even though we don't have royalty here in the States, as Americans, we're still fascinated by kings as well, aren't we? You guys remember the, uh, the movie franchise, the trilogy of movies that came out, The Lord of the Rings, starting in the year 2000? You remember those? Do you guys see those? And how, f- how many people flocked to go see those movies? It's the, it's the highest grossing motion picture trilogy worldwide of all time, raising a total of $2.9 billion. It's crazy. And winning over 17 Academy Awards. Now, why is that? We're fascinated by kings. 
were fascinated by royalty. And if you're not one of those Lord of the Rings nerds, maybe you didn't see that movie, maybe you're one of the few who didn't, then you probably pay attention, uh, pay attention to politicians, don't you? We all did. Didn't we, when the presidential elections were coming up, we all paid really close. I think I watched more of that presidential election than I ever have in my life. Why? Again, we're fascinated by political leaders and by royalty and by kings. Now we have to ask ourselves, why the fascination with kings and politicians and leaders and royalty? Why do we become, why do we become so focused on them and want to know all the intimate details of their lives? And I think there's two reasons. I think there's two reasons. First of all, we were created to be ruled. We were. We saw that in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 that God created us to submit to him as king. You see, God was the first king and we were created to submit to him. But as we saw in the fall, we rebelled against God as our king and we tried to take his place as king. And so what did God do in response? He declared us to be his enemies. He cursed us and the serpent and all creation so that this world is now an absolute mess. Which leads us to the second reason why we're fascinated with kings. We're fascinated with kings because we need to be saved. And that's what kings do, right? At least that's what good kings are supposed to do. They redeem us. They deliver us. They solve our problems. And that's what we look to them to do for us. You see, kings and political leaders and royalty are all pictures that constantly remind us that we were created to be ruled and that we desperately, desperately need to be saved. And that's the reason why God gives us so much scripture about the life of King David. Because in the life of David, God shows us what kind of king we need. So this morning, as we look at the life of David, the highlights, just like we did with Abraham, except there's even more scripture to try to cover with David, as we look at his life, I want us to see three insights from his life that show us what kind of king we need. Three insights from the life of David that show us what kind of king we need. And what we'll see is that we need a king appointed by God, a king after God's own heart, and a king who builds houses. So first, let's look at a king appointed by God. We're going to be all over the place in our Bible. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, so that's right before 2 Samuel where you were before. Funny how scripture does that. 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 through verse 22. So the whole chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. 
For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Now let me give you a little historical context for this chapter. Up to this point, because we've just skipped a lot of chapter by jumping from Abraham to David, up to this point in Israel's history, history, Israel was uh, ruled by judges. Time and time again, a problem would arise, God would acknowledge it, and he would raise up a judge to deliver and rescue Israel. But what this chapter tells us is that Samuel, the prophet of God at the time, made his sons the judges over Israel. In the past, God would appoint them. But Samuel here appoints his own sons. And the problem was his sons didn't walk in the ways of the Lord like he did. So the people come to Samuel and say, we're sick of your sons, give us a king. They're ruling unjustly, give us a king. Now, if you know anything about the history of Israel, you know that long before this moment, Israel wanted a king. Israel desired a king. And I should make a distinction here. Israel always had a king, a divine king. God was their king. But even while God was their king, they still longed to have a human king. And God knew that they desired this. God knew that they were going to. If you look all the way back, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God says, beginning in verse 14, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and they're in the land now, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. So not only did God tell the Israelites that one day they would desire a king, God told them that it was permissible for them to have a human king. It was totally fine. As a matter of fact, in the book of Judges, The fact that Israel doesn't have a human king is seen as one of the reasons for why things were so bad in Israel. 
Beginning in chapter 17, if you guys are familiar with the book of Judges, what's the constant refrain from that point on? And what was uh, in those days, this is the refrain that's repeated over and over again, in those days there was no king, no human king in Israel. And what was the result of there being no king in Israel? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So you see, human kingship is spoken of as a good thing. And it, wasn't a, and it was a bad thing that Israel didn't have a human king. Now the reason I'm pointing this out to you is because in the chapter we just read from, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, human kingship seems to be a bad thing, doesn't it? It's not spoken of positively here at all. For example, when the people tell Samuel that they want a king, how does Samuel respond? Is he happy about it? He isn't, is he? Verse 6 tells us that he is displeased when they say, give us a king to judge us. But even more importantly, how does God respond to the people's request? Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You see, God's not happy. Why? Because he knows that the people's request for a king is actually a rejection of him as their king. Now why is that? This is kind of confusing, isn't it? Because in Deuteronomy, God said it was okay. And the book of Judges seems to say that having a human king would be a good thing. So what's the problem here? The problem isn't that they want a human king. The problem is why they want a human king. And the reason why they want a human king is because they want to, as verse 5 tells us, be like all the nations. Now, why is that a problem? Well, how do the other nations treat their kings? What do the other nations expect their kings to do for them? Kings save, don't they? Kings bring stability. They bring peace and power and security. And what the people are telling God in their request for a human king, is they don't want to look to God to save them and bring stability and security and peace. They want a human king that they can trust and look to. And this isn't the first time this has happened. A perfect example of this is in Judges chapter 8. If you remember the story of Gideon, Gideon is one of the judges that God raises up who receives a lot of attention in the book of Judges so that he can conquer one of the Israelites' enemies, the Midianites. The Midianites are oppressing the Israelites, so God raises up Gideon to crush them. And there's all sorts of interesting aspects of Gideon's story. It's just a fascinating story. But one of the most fascinating things, if you remember, is how the Lord continually shrinks the size of Gideon's army. For example, in verse 2 of chapter 7, God tells Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So you see, the reason that God doesn't want Gideon's army to be too large is because if it is, then the Israelites will think they conquered the Midianites. Not because God delivered them, but because of their own vast army. So God shrinks Gideon's army again and again so that it goes from being a vast army of 32,000 soldiers to a small little skirmishing force of 300 soldiers. Now, if you know the rest of the story, amazingly enough, they actually beat the Midianites as God promised them, and it's an absolute miracle. Based on the numbers alone, it's just absolutely incredible. But after the victory, the men of Israel come up to Gideon and they say in verse 22, 
of Judges chapter 8, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But what does Gideon say? In verse 23, he says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. In other words, Gideon understood that it was wrong for the Israelites to attribute victory to him. It was wrong for the Israelites to think that they could look to him for peace and security. The whole reason why God reduced Gideon's army to 300 was to ensure that he would get the glory and not Gideon. And yet the Israelites wrongly attribute it to Gideon. So they look to him, to Gideon, for security and peace and say, rule over us. We willingly submit ourselves to you. But Gideon says, no, you need to trust God. It is he who rules over you. And you see what the Israelites are doing is they're doing the exact same thing here in 1 Samuel 8 that they did in Judges chapter 8. They're turning away from God, away from trust in God, and they're demanding a human king that they can turn to and trust in. A king just like all the other nations have. So God tells Samuel, don't worry Samuel, don't worry, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Just like they've always done. Ever since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, once again, they're forsaking me and trusting in something else. Once again, they're forsaking me and serving other gods, so I'll give them a human king. I will. But I want you to warn them that their king will be a bad king. So Samuel warns the Israelites. You remember this long list that we just read of offenses that the king is going to commit against the people, but the Israelites don't care. They demand a king anyway. And so God gives them one. Now it's real easy for us on this side of Scripture, being outside of the story, to sort of sit in judgment of the Israelites and be like, what was their problem? Why weren't they trusting in God? But I hope you can see that we're really not that different from the Israelites, are we? Just like the Israelites, we don't want to trust God. We want to trust something or someone that we can see and control. Walking by faith is too costly. It's way easier to walk by sight, by what we can see. So rather than trusting God as our king and letting him rule on the throne, we reject him and we put a lesser king, a false king, in his place. So let me ask you, who or what is the king that you've put in God's place? Who do you look to to give you security and stability and peace? Who do you entrust your soul, your well-being, and your happiness to? Is it your spouse? They're a false king. They're going to let you down. Is it your kids? If so, they're a false king. They're going to let you down. Is it your boss? Is it your boyfriend or girlfriend? Is it money? Success? Approval from other people? Comfort? Pleasure? Is it your looks or your intelligence or some skill that you possess? Is it your own ability to control your own little world and make sure that you manipulate every person and circumstance so that things go the way that you want? You see, these are all false kings and they're all going to let you down. Why? Because you weren't meant to look to created things to give you security and stability and peace. You were created to look to God 
for security and stability and peace. Because God is the only one who can give you those things. So what kind of king do we need? We need a king who is appointed by God because only a king appointed by God will be a true king, will be a good king. But if we appoint a king for ourselves, a king of our own making, it will always, always be a false king. And it will always be a king that leads to our destruction. Secondly, we need a king after God's own heart. A king after God's own heart. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Just flip forward a few pages. 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he, that being Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went up to Ramah. Well, at this point in the story, quite a few things uh, have taken place. But the most important thing that you need to know about is that God sent Samuel, who is the, the prophet of God at the time, to anoint Saul as the first king over Israel. And no surprise here, just as God had told the Israelites, Saul turned out to be a terrible king terrible king. And what we have here is Samuel grieving over the fact that Saul is such a bad king. He's just distraught. He's weeping. He's, he's terribly distraught by this. And the reason he's so distraught is because he thought Saul was going to be the real deal. He truly did. 
but he wasn't. And so God has to come to Samuel and shake him out of his grief and say, stop your grieving, go to Jesse, and I'll show you who will be the next king. Now, understandably, Samuel is afraid, very afraid to appoint the next king because he knows that if Saul finds out, Saul's going to try to kill him. So God tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem where Jesse lives, make a sacrifice, and invite Jesse to come so that you can see all of his sons. So that's what Samuel does. And clearly, Jesse knows what this visit is all about. Jesse knows that one of his sons is going to be the new king. We don't know how he knows, but clearly he does. And the reason we know that is because as soon as Samuel shows up in Bethlehem and invites Jesse to the sacrifice, Jesse begins to parade his sons in front of Samuel during this sacrifice. And the first son that Jesse sends is Eliab. And the reason Jesse sends Eliab first is because he's tall. You know, he's like, all the genes went to this one son. He's tall, he's good looking, he's physically impressive. And as, as much as we may scoff at those things now, those were extremely important, vitally essential to any king back in those days. Because think about it, in ancient times, physical power is what mattered the most. They didn't have guns, they didn't have projectile missile, missiles or weapons where you could just push a button and it'd go and blow somebody else up. You, you had to be physically strong. You had to pick up an object and take somebody else out. That was the way you conquered people back then. And so the tallest and strongest guy in the tribe or clan would always be the king. Why? Because he could beat everybody else up. Think, for example, of, of William Wallace. Do you guys know who William Wallace is? You're probably familiar with him as a historic figure from the movie Braveheart. But um, he was one of the key leaders who fought for Scottish independence from England in the 12th century. And uh, part of the reason he was so successful was because he was huge. I mean, they have his sword in a museum, and it's five feet six inches long. That's a big sword. Pick up a sword that big and try to swing it around. Scholars estimate that Wallace was probably around 6'6 six, six or 6'7. Six, That's tall nowadays. Back then, people were even shorter. So this guy was huge. I mean, just his presence, it's kind of like being around Chad or Randy Lovegreen. Just their mere presence is sort of intimidating. Um, but he was also, because of his size and coordination and, and military prowess, he was just unstoppable on the battlefield. Absolutely, well, I guess not completely unstoppable because he eventually died. But up to that point, he was, he was unstoppable. And so um, he's the, when you think of Eliab, think of William Wallace. Think of this incredibly tall, powerful, strong guy who'd make a great king, can crush everybody else in battle. He's gifted and skilled and competent. He's the perfect candidate. So Samuel takes one look at Eliab and thinks to himself, surely this has got to be the guy. This, this guy's an impressive specimen. But what does God say? Don't be fooled by his height and looks and prowess, Samuel. He's not the one. Because I'm not looking at Jesse's sons the way man would look at them. Man looks at the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. So Jesse continues to parade each of his sons in front of Samuel from the most impressive to the least impressive. But God continues to tell Samuel, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. So Jesse ends up showing Samuel seven of his sons. And remember, the number seven in Hebrew literature is a number for completeness. And so Samuel is a little puzzled here. On the one hand, it looks like he's seen all of Jesse's sons. All seven of them, the number for completeness. But on the other hand, God hasn't chosen any of them. So Samuel asked Jesse, 
is this it? Are all your sons here? And Jesse says, well, there is still the youngest. And that is a weak translation in the English. The Hebrew word that he uses there, yes, it means youngest, but it also means the most unimportant. It's got a pejorative pejorative connotation to it. So essentially, what Jesse is saying here is, yeah, there's one more, but he's the runt. I mean, I've got him out watching the sheep. I mean, it doesn't take much to entertain this kid. And he's too young. I don't know how he's going to turn out, so I didn't even bring him. And who was that runt? It was David. It was King David. And what we see here is that King David's being treated like a male Cinderella, essentially. All of his brothers get to go to the party and hopefully be chosen for royalty, but David is back at home, you know, doing his domestic chores, watching the sheep. But Samuel tells Jesse, bring him here. I won't rest until I sit. I won't even sit down until I see him. Bring him here. So David comes to Samuel, and the Lord tells Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. So Samuel gets up and anoints David as the next king of Israel. But we have to ask the question, why is David chosen? If the choice was based on what was in David's heart, what did God see? Was it that David was more pure and holy than the rest of his brothers? Well, if you take that approach, you're going to have a hard time explaining some of David's future actions. Because David participates in some really, really wicked behavior. Adultery. Um, rape, depending on how you actually read that section of Scripture. Um, murder, trying to cover it up with lies. Then he does a, it makes a consensus when God tells him not to. I mean, there's some pretty wicked sins and behaviors there. I mean, if you look at the, the track record and compare David's track record to Saul, it's not that much better. David's isn't much better. So that must not be it. So what is it? What is this difference? What does God see in David's heart? Now, I've got to be honest with you here. I don't, I don't know. The text doesn't actually tell us. But here's what the text does tell us. First of all, did you notice what happened to David after um, Samuel anointed him? Look at the end of verse 13. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now what that tells us is that David didn't have a perfectly pure and holy heart. As a matter of fact, David's heart was so weak and sinful that the Spirit had to rush upon him and flood him continually the rest of his life in order for him to be qualified as king. Second of all, we know from another text in Scripture, namely Acts 13.22, that David is called a man after God's own heart. And what I think that means is that David is the kind of king that God is. Think about it. How does God use his kingly power? Does he use his power at great cost to others in order to serve himself? Or does he use his power at great cost to himself in order to serve others? You see, Saul was the first kind of king. He used his kingly power at great cost to others in order to serve himself and make himself great. But God and David used their kingly powers at great cost to themselves in order to serve other people. Now, obviously, David didn't do that perfectly, but he did do that consistently as king. And that's why David was a king after God's own heart. And you see, that's the type of king that we need, brothers and sisters. We need a king who, at great cost to himself, uses his kingly power and might not to oppress us, but to serve us. We're weak and poor and, let's be honest, pretty stupid and sinful 
And the last thing in the world we need is a king who comes and uses his kingly power to expose our weakness and our poverty and depravity for their own personal gain. But don't you see that when we put a false king on the throne, it's exactly what we do. The false king may look good on the outside and promise us the world, but on the inside they're ugly. And their ugliness will overtake you and strip you of all that you have. You see, we desperately need a king after God's own heart. And lastly, we need a king who builds houses. A king who builds houses. I'm not going to read 2 Samuel chapter 7 again because I read that in the opening of the sermon. But what we find at that portion of scripture is that David is beginning to taste success as a king. There used to be so many enemies surrounding Israel once they were in the promised land and they were constantly marauding and oppressing the Israelites. But now that David has become king, he's starting to conquer them and push them back. And so he's, he's brought about a relative amount of, of uh, political and economic peace and stability. So he's, he's experiencing success. He's even got a new house that smells of cedar and is just very, very extravagant. It was extremely expensive to have a house of cedar um, back then. And typically in ancient times, when a king was experiencing this kind of uh, success militarily, economically, and politically, what he would do is he would build a temple to one of his gods. We have examples of this all throughout history. So they would build a temple to one of their gods, and then uh, one of the priests of the god would come and pronounce a blessing on the king and his kingdom and his family and his household. And so that's what we see David doing here. David wants to earn a blessing. So David runs the idea by Nathan. And Nathan is the prophet of God at the time, says, yeah, go ahead and do it. Whatever the Lord is with you, so whatever you put your heart to, just do it. But that same night, God comes to Nathan and tells him, David will not be allowed to build a house. David's not going to be the one to do it. Now, why doesn't God allow David to build him a house? Seems like a pretty nice gesture. Essentially, David says, God's been living in this tent, and I've got this nice house, so let me, let me build it for him. The reason God won't let David build him a house is because God doesn't want David to become confused about who God is. You see, God's character is on the line. God doesn't want David to think that he has to earn God's blessing. You see, in all the other religions that surrounded Israel, and let's face it, all the religions that are in the world today, man achieved divine blessing conditionally. In every other religion, the gods demand, give me a blessing, and then I'll give you a blessing. But you have to earn it. You have to merit it. That's the way you got a blessing from the gods. So by turning David down, what God is saying is, I'm not like the other gods, David. So don't treat me like I am. If you build this house for me and then I bless you, all of Israel will think and you will think that I'm just like the other gods, but I'm not. So you see, God was keeping David from going down a very, very dangerous path a very dangerous way of thinking about God. And the way that God keeps David from going there is that he gives David a counter-promise. So David comes to God and says, I promise you I'm going to build you a house. And God says, David, you're not going to promise me anything. I promise that I'm going to build you a house. You're not going to build me a house. You're not going to make a promise to me. 
in order to earn my blessing. I'm going to make a promise to you that I will build you a house. And God isn't talking about a physical house. God isn't talking about a temple like David was when he was promising to build God a temple. God is talking about a family line, a dynasty. God is saying, David, I promise to make your descendants a dynastic kingship, a line of kings that will start now and will last forever. And in verses 12 through 16, God says that nothing, nothing will be able to hinder him from keeping his promise to David. Even when David's dead, which guess what? We, we read the end of the story, David does die. God will still keep his promise. Even when David's descendants are sinful, which every single one of them are, God will still keep his promise. And lastly, in verse 16, God says that this dynasty will last forever. For eternity, it will not end. A king from David's line will come and rule forever and ever. But how can this be? Where is this king that God promises David? Where is he? David wasn't this king. Not perfectly. He was a picture of it, but he certainly wasn't the reality. And Solomon wasn't that king. So where is this king who was appointed by God? Where is this king who is a king after God's own heart? Where is this king who graciously builds houses for others? You see, the king that we need didn't come until centuries later. But he was David's greater son, born from David's line in the city of David, which is Bethlehem. He was a king that we rejected. We crucified him. And we tried to put ourselves in his place. But he was God's appointed king. God's chosen king. He was a king who wasn't physically attractive. And he wasn't known for his physical strength or military might. But he was a king after God's own heart. He used his power to love and serve the poor and the downcast and the sinful and he was a king unlike the kings of this world. He didn't demand that his blessing be earned. He gave his blessing freely, graciously, and extravagantly. See, this king was Jesus. And it was Jesus who fulfilled God's promise to David. Because Jesus conquered sin by dying on the cross for you and for me. And Jesus conquered death by rising from the grave. And as king, Jesus conquered time because he shall reign forever and ever. His kingdom will know no end. Brothers and sisters, behold, this is your king. And your king has come. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we humbly acknowledge that you did create us to be your servants, your vice-regents in creation, to rule creation while submitting to you as our King. 
And yet, Lord, we admit and confess that in Adam we rebelled against you. We didn't want you to be king. We wanted to call the shots. We wanted to be king. So we rebelled against you and you cursed us and we became your enemies. And we tried to overthrow your rule and your reign. And Father, we're thankful that Jesus is the promised seed, the seed that you promised in the fall, the the king, Lord, that you promised to David. He is the king that you appointed. He is your chosen king. And Lord, he came to serve. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for the many. And so, Lord, we're thankful that he humbled himself and became a man. It was born in this lowly town of Bethlehem, of the line of David. Father, we're thankful that he lived the perfect life that we couldn't in our place. He perfectly submitted to you as king in our place. And Father, we're thankful that on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins and he conquered death on our behalf and he rose to your right hand where he now rules and reigns. Father, we're thankful that you have promised to build David a house and we have seen you fulfill that promise in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would be a people who daily cast ourselves off the throne of our lives which leads to so much worry and anxiety and struggle. And Lord, instead, we would put you on the throne. We would allow you to rule and reign in our lives. And Father, we pray that we would trust you more as a result of seeing how you have so scrupulously kept your promises in your perfect timing. Father, we love you and we thank you for the gift of your Son, our King, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.